Thanks for downloading this message from Devoted 2015, a Christ Central festival for all the family. Christ Central is part of New Frontiers, and our distinctives are made up of four priorities. Being friends enjoying God together, building churches empowered by word and spirit, advancing the kingdom transforming the world, and reaching nations making disciples. Devoted is just one event, but you can find out more about Christ Central and other training opportunities at ChristCentralChurches.org. For more about Devoted, please visit DevotedEvent.org. Thanks for listening. See you next year. A very warm welcome to the uh, Social Engagement Zone. Hello. Great. Good to see you. Uh, Thanks so much for coming. Uh, this morning, and a special welcome to you if you're here for the first time in this zone. Um, we've had three very interesting, two very interesting sessions, and this one is going to be no different. Uh, I can guarantee that from the start. So, a warm welcome. This uh, this zone is hosted by the Jubilee Plus team, my colleagues um, Andy um, and Isla Biggs uh, in the shirts here. They are helping me, and uh, we'll tell you a bit about Jubilee Plus at the end of the seminar. Uh, and one or two of the things we're doing, we have a stand over there with the various resources. Um, but our topic today uh, is um, social enterprise, and uh, you're, that's why you're here, so you know the topic. And uh, we're going to divide um, the seminar into two halves. So our speaker, I'll introduce in just a moment, will give the presentation. And then we're going to spend some significant time really teasing out the implications, because in church culture... The development of a social enterprise culture is still in the formative stages. And uh, it's a very, very significant issue. And there'll probably be a lot of questions that you want to ask. So we're going to have some good discussion in the second half. We finish promptly at 12.30 so that uh, people can go and get their children, teenagers, etc. Um, we have signage here. And by the way, um, if there's any problem with cars or children who need help, there's a little whiteboard down there, and if one of the stewards comes and shows it to you, then uh, please take the appropriate action without any further comment from the front. Okay, so I think we're nearly ready to go. So uh, our guest speaker today is my good friend Kate Welsh, who's a well-known social entrepreneur. She's going to tell a story. She's recently accepted my invitation to become a director on the board of Jubilee Plus and to give us some uh, expertise in certain areas we're trying to develop and I'm because she lives a phenomenally busy life so that's a real privilege uh, for me and I've just found out that she's been down uh, over the weekend to Exeter area for one of the other New Frontiers camps known as West Point where she gave a talk um, to them similar to the one that she's giving here so Kate we're absolutely thrilled you're here can you give a very warm welcome to Kate as she comes to her presentation thanks very much Thank you, Martin, and thank you very much, and thank you for not going to see Steve McLaren and coming to see me instead. This is going to be about how we can start to think a little bit differently about the social action that we want to do, that we feel called to do, that is put upon our heart in terms of tackling social issues of various sorts, of which we know there are very many, both in the UK and overseas. So social enterprise is very much about having a different mindset and a way of thinking about tackling those issues. 
I'm going to start with a definition, which you may or may not like in terms of having to have definitions. But this is the Department of Business's definition of a social enterprise. So it says, a social enterprise is first and foremost a business, but a business with social objectives and where the majority of the profits are reinvested back into that social purpose rather than being paid out to shareholders or others. So it's, as I said before, a different way of thinking. There's been a a, a blog recently in, in our sector which has said social enterprises generally have more focus than charities because charities have to think about raising funds all the time while they're also trying to do the charitable work that they set out to do, where social enterprises decide what they're going to do to tackle the social issue, and then that becomes the focus. And I think that's a very interesting thing to start to think about. We've got to develop an interesting wink system back here. I'm not a member of a New Frontiers church. I'm a Methodist by both upbringing but... Uh, very much the church that I'm part of now. And this resonates for me, coming back to Wesley, about asking and feeling that we're called to do all the good we can, by all the means we can, in all the ways, in all the places, at all the times, to all the people, as long as you ever can. And for me, there's something about that longevity. You can get tired doing charitable work sometimes. I'm sure that's never happened to anybody in this room at all. Anybody sometimes think, I know I said I'd go down to there, but I'm feeling a little tired now. This volunteering stuff's very hard. It is, and social enterprise isn't an easy solution, but it might just be a way of, again, as I said before, thinking just a little bit differently about how you might approach things. What I'm going to do first of all is do a little tiny bit of theory just to get you thinking about the different models of social enterprise. So these are different ways of of making a social enterprise work. Then I'll tell you a little bit about my own personal journey as a social entrepreneur and some of the social enterprises that I've been involved in that I've founded and in different ways are still going or sometimes aren't because there's also times when you stop doing it. Then share some other examples and then leave you with some questions. And then lots of chances, Martin said before, for some questions and answers afterwards. So, the different models. This is a framework that came from the Charities Aid Foundation. And I found this really quite useful in terms of thinking of different ways in which you might tackle social enterprise. So, first of all, the first one is what they call the profit generator model. Make profit. Just to clear some things up, profit is not a dirty word. Sometimes people think it is in the world of charity and uh, social action, but if you don't actually make a profit, you can't do anything in the long term. And I think we've seen examples of organizations. You may have seen the press about Kids Company, for example, recently, where there were some real issues about people who don't actually run charities or businesses as well as they should be done. Model two is often the model that most people in social enterprise run. And it's, I always think about it as a seesaw. It's a balance. We call it the trade-off model because you're always balancing the financial and the social. Hard to do, but can be very worthwhile. And then model three, and if you can find model three for what you're going to try and do, we call it lockstep because the more money you make, the more good you do. That's quite good if we can manage to make that happen. So moving on to model one. Model one says, 
engage in a trading activity. Think about all those people who run businesses in this country and make money. They could be running social enterprises because the difference would be take the profit that you make from running that business and put all or most of that profit into the social cause, the social good that you're trying to do. Okay? One clear example would be charity shops, trading subsidiaries of, of charities where they might run a retail, and many of you may be involved in that. I certainly know people like the Dome Christian Partnership near me are doing that. You run a charity shop, perhaps with donated goods, and then all of those profits, and you can also usually use the tax system to advantage and gift aid them, go into the charity or the social cause. The next example I'm going to show you is perhaps slightly more ambitious in the sense of this is one water. I don't know if you've ever had one water, bought one water. They've got relationships with big companies like Virgin now. So if you go uh, on a Virgin train, you will probably get one water if you buy it from the shop. You may or may not agree with bottled water. That's not the discussion today. But what they do is they sell the bottled water and all of the profit from the bottled water goes into the one foundation, which is a charity that then spends that money on water aid projects in Africa. What I also like is the innovation. So that's a play pump. So that pump there is children playing in a playground and bringing water out of the ground. That just seems to have a very nice kind of double whammy, doesn't it, which is like... Do you know how much money has so far gone from sales of one water? Well in excess of £6 million. Okay, so this is big if you can get it right. What they've also done is taken it the next stage. They sell eggs and the sale of the eggs, the profit from that goes to buy chickens for farmers in Africa and they sell condoms as well and that goes to HIV AIDS prevention. So you can see a model. It is still hard work. I spoke to um, Julie Devonshire who at one point was running one and as she said, you try getting your bottled water on the shelves of Tesco. This is not easy stuff. And Andy's nodding at me because, you know, you know exactly running anything in terms of uh, fair trade companies or similar is hard. Model two that I talked about, this is this balance, that whole thing of the, the um, way of trying to find a way to get as much finance and, and social benefit at the same time. And fair trade, in a way, is like that. So fair trade is hard if you're running a fair trade business. I know Sophie Tronchello runs Divine Chocolate quite well, and Sophie will say, this is hard. And has it been a victory that actually we've got many of the mainstream chocolate companies now making fair trade chocolate and paying very good money or more money to the cocoa growers? Yes, but actually that also makes it very hard for Divine, and they've lost their place in some of the supermarkets that they were selling to. So it's hard, but it's a very good, and a lot of the ethical businesses work in this space. There's a very interesting one on the next slide, which is um, Blue Sky. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Blue Sky. You may not have done, but they're a social enterprise that employs ex-offenders, Everybody employed by Blue Sky is an ex-offender, including the guy who founded it and was the chief executive until very recently. What they do is ground maintenance work, landscaping, and they win contracts, so quite a lot of their income comes through contracts. They can't just make it work that way, because if you were a conventional landscaping company, you'd probably work on the basis that you'd need around one supervisor for maybe every 10 staff, they have to work to a ratio of one supervisor to every three staff. 
because ex-offenders are not the easiest of people to bring back into the labour market, particularly if they've never, ever worked. So it's hard work again. You can tell I'm not giving you an easy answer here today, but I'm getting you to think a little differently. But what they have done is brought other income in through training contracts, employment contracts, and things of that sort, and that's enabled them to keep the balance. They're certainly not making a fortune, but what they are doing is helping an awful lot of people who would never have got the chance to go into the labor market before. So the third of the three models is what we call the lockstep model. So this is about saying the more you sell, the more people will benefit. Quite often cooperatives fit into that, but a lot of cooperatives aren't quite as social as some people would like to see. So one example perhaps is the phone co-op. You can buy a phone contract from a cooperative organization. Another even better example is the buy one, give one free models. I don't know if anybody's seen these before. Tom Shoes is a good example. Has anybody bought Tom Shoes? No. Somebody has. Hooray. Oh, here we are, a real example of Tom Shoes. But by buying that pair of Tom Shoes, what you've actually done is made sure that a pair of shoes has gone to somebody who wouldn't have been able to afford it. What is even better... And this is some of the thinking I want you to do today, is in the past, if somebody had donated shoes to children in you know, a village in a developing country, a shipment of shoes would have arrived, they would have been second-hand, some, they might have been pre-loved, sorry, what do we call it? We don't call it second-hand, do we? Pre-loved shoes. Those children would not have been able to choose the shoe they want. They might have had to manage with a pair that wasn't quite the size that they actually wanted. With the Tom Shoes model, they get to order their shoes. So how different do you feel if you're now a customer as opposed to a beneficiary? Think Just that mindset... And that's nothing to say there's nothing wrong with at least being able to get some of our pre-loved shoes out to people. But if we can find a way to come up with a social enterprise model. Do you want to ask a question? Yes, they get the shoes for free. Yes, they're giving. So in essence, by you buying your pair of shoes, thank you very much, you've given away a pair to somebody else. I have to say Tom's shoes aren't the cheapest of shoes necessarily, but did you get a warm glow inside as well? And they're really comfy. That is, and actually, that is a very, very true thing to think about. When I start talking about some of the other things that people are doing, when you make products or when you deliver services, people will only buy once for sympathy, right? You would not buy another pair of shoes if they weren't very comfy. Very lightweight, very easy to wear, and very comfortable. So you might buy another pair because they're a good pair of shoes, but what you've also done is given at the same time. Okay? There's a guy um, in Scotland set up something called Social Bite, uh, which is a cafe in Edinburgh. He's now got two in Edinburgh, one in Glasgow, moving to Aberdeen and potentially coming to Newcastle, called Social Bite, causing some controversy because he's not what some people think is a social enterprise. It's a social business. But what he is doing is when you buy a sandwich, you can buy another one for a homeless person. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, any sandwiches left in the shop are given to homeless people. Quite often, I don't know how many times a week, I don't want to say something that may be wrong, but around about three times a week, he provides a meal to homeless people. And he ran a campaign before Christmas to buy a Christmas meal for people. In fact, people were so generous 
that what he was able to do is still give meals out till around about May. Okay? <laughs> it overwhelmed them somewhat. I think it was something like 38,000 pounds of Christmas meals that were, were given. And that's in a sandwich shop. But, and I went to test the sandwiches, they're nice sandwiches. Yeah? And it's good coffee. If we got one or two things wrong in some of the early days of fair trade, if I dare say this in this space, we didn't make the best of coffee. Am I allowed to say that? I'm talking it to the guy who runs Tradecraft at the moment. Um, well, absolutely, our church organist wouldn't touch fair trade coffee for years and years. I had to keep going and buying better and better fair trade coffee. Eventually, I got him persuaded. It took, seriously, it took 15 years to get him to, to drink fair trade coffee because he just said, but I don't like it. I'll give the money. I don't mind, but I don't like it. Okay? So people do only buy once for sympathy. If it's not worth buying, then they won't buy it again. What I now want to talk about is a different way of thinking. This comes from a book called From Good to Great. It's actually from good to great for the social sector. And this was written by an American academic, a guy from Harvard University called Jim Collins. And what he did is he studied over a long period of time what were the characteristics of great organizations. And his definition of great was organizations that didn't just come and go, but that were there for the long term. He did get one or two wrong, I have to say, when you read the book now um, in the big recession, but... What he said was, there are a number of things. First of all, what he calls level five leadership. We might call that servant leadership. That's about leaders of organizations that are not about ego, greed, self, but are about the good of the cause. Now, social enterprises, social entrepreneurs tend to be people who are doing it for the right reason and the good of the cause. Then he talks about getting the right people on the bus. Now, I get slightly controversial here at times, but bear with me. That's about having the right people around you to run the social enterprise or the business. It's not always the people that are part of your group at church. Sometimes your fellow Christians are not actually the best people to work with you in the organization. I've seen a number of people go badly wrong with what they've done because they've taken on people that actually didn't have the commitment or the skill set. They might have had the faith, but they didn't have the commitment and the skill set. So get the right people on the bus. It's actually a great opportunity to bring people to Christ if they're not already there. So then he talks about, and this is the thing that's on the screen there, what he calls the hedgehog model. It's great explaining the hedgehog model to a, uh, a UK audience. I did try this with some Chinese people the other day, and they don't have hedgehogs in China. It went a bit flat. But if you think about the fox and the hedgehog, the fox darts all over the place trying to eat the hedgehog, poor hedgehog. The hedgehog knows exactly what to do. He curls up in a ball, sticks his spines out, and protects, protects his soft underbelly that the fox is after. So this is about focus. If you really know what you're setting out to do, that's your focus, and the hedgehog model works. And then the rest of the book talks about the disciplines, the flywheel of keeping that going. And what he describes the hedgehog model as are the three things here. First of all, what are you passionate about? Most social enterprises or social entrepreneurs start because of a reason to do something. Now, for Christians, that's very often they feel called to tackle some issue. It's been placed on their heart that this is absolutely something that God wants them to do. 
It could be anything. Some people have personal experiences, a family member who's perhaps got involved with drugs, so what they really want to do is something about recovery. For other people, it might be unemployment, it might be debt, it could be anything. Okay? So that's that passion. And if you're not passionate about it, I almost have to say to people, well, why are you bothering? Because you need that passion to drive this. Because like I said before, this isn't easy. It takes time. The next thing is, what can you be the best at? Because in any business, you might have heard in business terms the word unique selling point. You've got to have something that makes what you do better or that really works compared to what other people are doing or that you know works best in your area or whatever it might be. Sometimes, and there's a lot of theory in this, but people will talk about the theory of change. So what is the situation like now? What do you want it to be like? And then what are you going to do to change it from where it is now to where you want it to be? Yeah? That's your theory of change. If you can explain that well, then that will be your hedgehog model. And then the third bit is saying what drives your resource engine. So how are you actually going to fund it, make it work? Now, often... The best way to think about it is to say, well, actually, what are the products or services that we're actually producing and who's going to value them? And I'll give you some examples, and that will let you see how social enterprises work in different ways. So the first example, this is my own story. In 2000, I was quite a long story of where I've been uh, before that, but I was involved as the training manager for the local training and enterprise council. So I looked after all of the training contracts for unemployed adults in County Durham. That's where I'm based. And I was seconded to go and run something called an action team for jobs in Easington. Now, some of you may never have heard of Easington, but if you've seen the film Billy Elliot, yeah, quite a lot may have done, that's Easington, Easington Colliery. In 2000, that was the fourth most deprived place in the whole of the UK. There were three London boroughs and then Easington. 27% of the adult population were on sickness benefits. A third of the adult population, and this is an indigenous white British population at 99.6%, could not read or write to the level of an 11-year-old. So this is a population that really is struggling to find jobs. And so I went in to set the action team up and got rather frustrated by the fact that I couldn't do things. I had to work for Job Centre Plus. So you can assault me later about that one if you wish. I didn't invent sanctions, honestly. No, I was only there for a relatively short period of time because I was so frustrated by not being able to make things happen within the bureaucratic organization that that's when I set a social enterprise up. And I set up a development trust called Acumen to put some business acumen into the voluntary sector. And we set off essentially to help people into economic activity because what was very apparent to me was the thing that changed life for people was actually having control of their own income and stopping to be dependent on benefits if they were able to work, to be able to work or start a business. And most of the time, what they were doing was saying to themselves, I'll never be able to do this. I'll never get a job. Nobody in my family's had a job for a year. I couldn't start a business because they limit themselves by their own belief. And we found a way to get people back into jobs and start businesses that was very effective And the way you fund that, essentially, is the Department for Work and Pensions, the government, will pay you to get people into work because it saves them money on benefits. So if you can do it in the right way, you've got a business model. So founded Acumen, and we were able to 
work quite successfully. At peak, we were helping something around about 1,500 people a year in Easington into work. We then were asked to move and and work more uh, in other places. So some people here from Northumberland, for example, we ran something called Wandsbeck Works for uh, a few years uh, as a multi-agency model to address worklessness. You try translate. Is that a nice one, that one? Multi-agency model to address worklessness. I'm sure you did that well. (laughs) Getting people working together because actually the power of people working together and tackling unemployment on particularly those who aren't even coming into the job center for look for a job. So that's the workless. What we then did is started to look at, and this slide will be quite small to see, but I'm happy to share it with people later, the employability skills that the CBI, the Confederation for British Industries, are looking for. They're not that interested in whether somebody's got an NVQ level two in whatever it might be. What they're interested in is can people actually uh, have a positive attitude? Can they manage themselves? Can they work as part of a team? Have they got awareness of businesses and customers? Can they solve problems? And then they want to see some basic literacy, IT, and numeracy. But actually, it's a lot of the things that we don't do in our traditional training courses and things. So what we started to do was develop things that would address that. So the next slide, you won't even know what this is, but it's the pizza of life. So the pizza of life was about us developing what became a self-belief and emotional resilience course. So teaching people to stop saying, I can't, I'll never be able to, but to start saying, I can. In fact, I have. And that was one of the big things. Then we had a team of employment advisors, so we do what lots of others do, but we coached and supported people one-to-one. And then, more importantly, we also worked with employers, because if you can work with employers in the right way, they will understand that even if somebody's got a gap on their CV, these are valuable human beings who can bring something to the workplace. So that was the first social enterprise I set up in 2003. It's still going. I'm not directly involved. I'm a non-executive director, but they're still helping people. They're having to work through the government's work program. So that's a big contract, but it's quite scary because the cash flow is difficult. So again, this is not an easy ride, but it can be done. And there's a lot of people will say work program's terrible. You might have heard that issue um, uttered by people. Well, I believe that if you've got good organizations, particularly faith-based organizations, doing that job to support people, it will be significantly better than if you've got it being run by big corporations. So that's a choice that you can make. We could do this better than perhaps the Circos or Indiuses or Avantas or whoever of this world. So this is really then to start taking you through a little bit of a journey. I'm well past time, aren't I? I'm all right. Keep going, he says. I like this. Um, To talk about most people at the moment are involved in some form of social action as a voluntary group. And very often that's when we start. We might then move on to a more constituted charitable group of some sort and then gradually start to move towards social enterprise. So the next little series of slides and what we're actually going to do is see a three-minute video of a community project called Blooming Marvellous. So let me show you. This is happening in Horden and Easington Colliery in East Durham. So... (laughs) 
So as you can tell, we had great fun there, but it was a community project. We got 5,000 people out on the streets from two colliery villages. We planted 5,000 hanging baskets and gave them away. And as you can see from the smiles on people's faces, we gave some hope back into some villages that really had had the stuffing knocked out of them. It doesn't matter whether you're political or not, but that one lady did say to me, blisters on both hands from doing all the sweeping and digging and pruning and everything she'd done. She said, you, this has put the stuffing back into these villages that Margaret Thatcher took out of it when the pits were closed because it had been all mining, completely mining. So one of those villages, 1,400 jobs in the pit. When the pit closed, no jobs. And that's almost not quite overnight. And that just removed all of the hope from those villages. Not saying it was wrong or right to do that, but that's what happened. So this was a way of being able to get that back. But what we did is we said, now how do we turn this into a social enterprise? And we started with a very small one acre of land and a polytunnel and grew some plants, did some landscaping. And then we were able to take on a 10-acre site with two acres of glass houses and start selling bedding plants very commercially. Now, not everything works. At the end of three years, and unfortunately, we actually had to close it because it rained. If anybody remembers 2012, it was the year when it rained, the worst rain for 100 years. And some people say, well, that was a failure. But if you look at the next slide, what we actually did is we created nine jobs, we were able to help. There was a particular government program called Future Jobs Fund, but we got a lot of people into work as a result of that. And we worked with ex-offenders here. We were trying to create jobs for ex-offenders, and we were able to do that for a number and also to move people on. So I got that far with that one. We did have to close it. What I'm now doing is looking at how we start to get some more added value. So I found a man in Cardiff who's invented a very clever grow pad. So if you see that grow pad there on uh, uh, the left of your screen, those lettuces are growing on just that little strip of membrane with a substrate in. If you go on to the next couple of pictures, you'll see the sort of crops that this is producing. And then on to the next one, those are again some ex-offenders. So we're trying again not on the same site, but I'm working with a community organization to raise the value of what we're actually selling. So one of the issues is we didn't get the business model quite right. We were trying to sell a very weather-dependent crop and not make big enough profit margins. What we're finding now is some other crops that we can do it with. So can you see how you start to think differently? The next pictures, this is a church, so a Methodist church, not far from us, this is actually in Wrighton, that have developed a coffee shop. Fine, good start. What they're actually making the money out of is the soft play area. Yeah? Okay, so children's soft play enabled them to make money. The next organizations in Gateshead, they were a group of Christian young people that came together many years ago and wanted to do something about homeless people and young single mums. So they now run a lot of contracts. They're called Aquila. They're part of the Oasis group now. But they run houses for young mums about to have babies and then who have babies. And they've turned that essentially into a social enterprise because they raise a lot of their income through grants, but also now from buying and renting properties. The next one is literally just down the road here called Hill Holt Ward. I don't know if anybody knows it. That's an ancient woodland. And you might say, well, how do I turn an ancient woodland into a social enterprise? Well, this is a million-pound business now. And they do that by helping young people with alternative education. They've created it as a visitor space, and they've turned that into a social enterprise. You might have no idea what this lady's making, but this is in Brazil. And the bag on the left, anybody know what that might be made of? Ring pulls and cans. Has anybody seen them? 
they crochet the ring, they flatten the ring poles, crochet them together. They've worked with a design school. I think this is important in uh, America to get designer stuff. So the price they can sell things for is higher now, and that's creating jobs for these ladies in Brazil. The next one is, uh, this was Brazil as well, solar-powered hearing aids. Because people in developing countries can't access the batteries and afford the batteries, so they then do those. I went to China last year and found them doing it in China now as well and working with deaf people making those hearing aids. This is just to say you're never too old. This is a 78-year-old Vietnamese lady who started a cookery school for street kids, teaches them cookery, and gets them jobs in five-star hotels. Why not? Yeah? The next one is a lovely lady in this tiny little village in the northwest of Vietnam who's created a little um, work area for the girls with disabilities in her village. And they had some, they wouldn't have their photographs taken. They had some very severe disabilities, girls with missing limbs, all sorts of things. She's creating craft products. But what they've done is they've linked to a bigger organization that sells those craft products in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City to the tourists to make more money. So it's just thinking differently. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, what I've now done is started to look at how you make these things more successful. So this is the very last canter throw. Start to think about how you can test your ideas. Have you got the light bulb, the idea? Have you got a route to market? Because if you can't sell what you're doing, it's not going to work. Have you got the right people or personal people? Can you stack the money up, the right sorts of money to get it started? And have you got a system, a platform, a chassis to build it on? Lots of people go wrong because they didn't build the right governance systems, measurements, and all that sort of thing into what they do. If you don't know, <laughs> sorry, this is an accountant beside me go, yet yeah, know what you're doing with your money. So we then started to say, well, how could you take some of the ideas we'd had with the horticulture into something that might be more viable? So we developed... Um, an idea that if you think about this uh, on the next page, if we sell one of those little herb plants to a garden centre and we've grown it in the nursery, we can sell it for about 60p. If you pop it in a posh box and we put your name on it, anybody been on the website notonthehighstreet.com? You'd pay 35, 40 pounds for the box with two herb plants in and that's just waste wood. So think about can you add value? Well, somebody's mad enough to buy it, then... <laughs> We're in Robin Hood country, aren't we? Sell to the rich to give to the poor. It's a great concept. So we started to think of ideas, worked in Durham prison. So the next picture is some of the prisoners in Durham. And I think I just want to plant another concept with you of value. I said to the lads in the prison, you know, you're grinning. Why, what are you, why are you looking so thrilled about mixing concrete and building a breeze block wall? And one of the lads said to me, he says, well, you know, miss, and I thought, that's nice. I haven't been missed for 35 years. said, it's the first time I've ever built something I didn't have to knock down. Because when you train, you build and you knock down. And for the first time, somebody valued what he'd actually built. And that was just the blocks to build the raised beds to grow the plants in. Then we started to turn to the woodwork, and we worked with the design school at Northumbria University and came up with this very posh table. So you can imagine the building of something like that. We've never been allowed to work with seasoned oak before. Yeah? Brilliant stuff. Then moved on. We were actually filmed with Katie Piper, the girl who had acid thrown in her face. She worked with us on a pilot, and this was filmed for Channel 4, and the lads working there, we were then able to get some placements with, with Greg's the Bakers. I happen to work on, I sit on their foundation trust. And of the three of them, one of them didn't manage to succeed in the placement. The other two did, and they're still working in Greg's 18 months on in permanent jobs. 
that's turned their lives around completely. So we're now taking it to the next stage. This is, we've called it Crafty Enterprises. There is a bit of a joke that the logistics bit will be called dodgy. Oh, no, shifty, sorry, shifty. And then the accounts department can be dodgy. That was right. That was where we were going. No, no. So Crafty Enterprise, a little bit of a twinkle in the eye, come up with some slightly cheaper designs so that we can sell more value and just take it the next stage. So if I've done nothing else, hopefully I've made you think a little bit differently. I'll leave you that next slide, which is part of the kind of what next and where you might go. I'm going to be around for a bit more of today as well if anybody wants to ask anything, but you're going to get an opportunity right now to do some questions and answers. Thank you. So much appreciation for Kate. Right. So... She's thrown so many things at you, and this is the way she does it. I've experienced it before. Uh, But it's very, very stimulating. So now we're going to try and unpick some of the ideas. Some of those things you might have thought, well, that went over really quickly, and I just want to go back and a bit of clarification, the three different models or whatever it might be. So uh, we're going to do Q&A for for as much time as we need now. Andy's got the mic. And can I just make another point of information? Andy, my colleague, Andy Biggs, who works on my team in Jubilee Plus, he's also acting CEO of Tradecraft currently, hence the comment that Kate made, just in case you didn't know that. That's another story, isn't it, Andy, which we won't go into now. Okay, so (laughs) um, if you've got a question, raise your hand. Microphone coming to you. We want to record the question because this is a recorded session. Please give us your name and the question, preferably not a long statement, but an actual question so that we can interact with Kate immediately. So anyone want to ask? There's a lady over there on the right. Let's start with her. Could I ask if there's a process of uh, getting a mentor, if you're thinking of starting a social enterprise and want some mentoring? Is there a process? Yeah. A question about mentoring. Yeah. may operate differently in different parts of the country. This is one of the issues because there isn't necessarily a standard um, setup. If anybody's in the northeast of England, uh, and that really means for, from Teesside upwards, then we can provide that through my organization, Social Enterprise Acumen. Uh, and I've left some cards on the table, so if anybody wants that, please take one. Um, we also are part of a network um, run by an organization called Unlimited which is the foundation for social entrepreneurs. So early stage, Unlimited may well be able to offer some help. If you can't find anybody through them, drop me an email and I'll tell me where you are and I'll try and find something. And then the other thing, if you've got early stage ideas, there is something called the School for Social Entrepreneurs, and they operate a number of schools on an annual basis in different parts of the country. So again, depending on where you are, you may it's competitive to get in, but you may be able to get into the School for Social Entrepreneurs. Can we just clarify that? Uh, what do you mean by school in terms of time commitments? Is it's, it like a course for a term? or a, It's the one year. That they run different ones, but they, uh, the standard one, it's actually funded by Lloyd's Bank, actually, at the moment. They run a one-year program, and the commitment is a day a month to attend, but there are other shorter ones around the country. With what we do, we offer one-to-one coaching and support, so it's absolutely up to people depending on how much time they want to spend. Very good question, actually, and that's really helpful because I think a lot of people, Kate, come here with ideas, but very, very little contextual training, um, and I think that's one of the bridges we want to build by a seminar like this. Other questions um, that people would like to ask? I'm looking for hands. Uh, the lady just at the back there in the green, thank you. I didn't quite get um, what you were what you were saying specifically about the um, 
the project in Gateshead. Could you reiterate that? I was just quite interested about the single motherhood side of things. Yeah. So, so this is Aquila Way, uh, and essentially what they wanted to do, and this, they are a charity by constitution, but was to support homeless people, and particularly uh, within what they were doing, support single mothers. So they've actually created, um, they originally leased a house, and that's where they provide ongoing support. So it's a combination of social work, but giving people also an environment in which they can flourish. Um, and they funded it partly in the initial stages. A lot of their funding was charitable. And again, many social, you know, I talked about that journey for people. Many social enterprises start perhaps with charitable grant funding donations, but they've gradually moved to the stage where they're now winning contracts to actually do that sort of work because they've proved what they do. So they have a contract with Gateshead Council. With some of the other homeless people, they do a, um, uh, a program where they support people as they're released from custody in prison. So they now have a number of houses where they do some supported accommodation there. And then anybody that's in the accommodation space, it's, again, it's not completely easy, but because of things like the housing allowance, you may be able to actually have a model if you can uh, get property and support people in supported accommodation in the property. Uh, just an associated question. Can I ask you, Kate, so if you, uh, which... Um, for charitable funding in the early stage, like startup seed funding and so on, any particular recommendations of where to look? I know it depends a bit on the sector. <laughs> it but does. Any general yeah. thoughts? Um, there are a lot of different places to look. I suppose, in a way, what I'd, I'd rather say to people is if you've thought your project through and you can see a sustainable solution that will happen once you've actually got the initial funding, that's a better case to make to a funder. So in very small stages, um, if, you're, if you're wanting something small, community foundations are a great place to start because there's almost one everywhere in the country and they do small grants. The slightly bigger grants can be harder to get, but if you can convince organizations, we've just seen in the Northeast, Virgin Money have come in and, and started a foundation. And what they've asked for, and they're giving to, to, sorry, something like 20 to 50,000 pounds as a grant, is they're looking for an idea that will become sustainable. So this is where social enterprise can sometimes, if you like, win over somebody saying, give me some money now, and then in two years' time, I'm coming back, and can you give me some more money? If you can actually say, give me that startup funding, and with it, I will do this, 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 and this. That will then enable us to actually earn money going forward. Then they like that. That's really helpful. I think that's an issue some people will be thinking about. Uh, Sam, yeah, over here in the yellow. Do you know of any examples of software companies or software development being used as a tool? Uh, Absolutely. In social enterprise? Yeah. So, um, and... There are also some really good accelerator programs, tech programs. So one social enterprise, very small one that we're supporting, is um, a family whose son has Down syndrome. So what they've done is they've called it Special iApps, and they've developed apps for um, the iPad that their son can use more easily. And now they're selling that to other to special schools and other people with uh, children with those special needs. Um, I've been helping a guy who was quite commercial initially, wanted to, um, he called it social enterprise initially, to deliver healthy meals to busy executives at their desk, called Delivered. So again, using an app to kind of um, match people to the healthy meal. But what we've done is I've matched him to the Sheffield Cathedral Archer Project, which is a project working with homeless people in Sheffield. 
So the homeless people in the project are cooking the meals and delivering them on bicycles to the busy executives. Not bad, not bad. I think you'd agree. Uh, okay, uh, yes, gentleman at the back. Thank you, Andy. Hi, Kate, I'm Paul. Hello, Paul. Um, I'm trying to set a project up called Scrap for Life, which will be working with ex-offenders and people who's been on the street, drug addicts, alcoholics. Um, I'd went into business with somebody. We'd bought six properties for £160,000. We turned two of them round straight away, which made £450,000 off them. But because I was an ex-offender, I couldn't put my name on paperwork and things like that. So these people walked away with a profit and pushed us out, basically. I'm trying to do it now where we can set something up where can I, when we've got these lads in training in mechanics, stripping the parts down to sell on the internet, which you can do, um, can we then get funding, money off the government for keeping them even though they're in training and they're they're working, basically, but they're in recovery as well? Yeah. Um, This is... It is possible to get training contracts... But one of the issues is, at the moment, the two main funders of training, that type of training contracts, are either the Department for Work and Pensions or the Skills Funding Agency. And one of the difficulties for newer organizations or people is to get onto their approved providers list because most of the funding goes to big providers or goes to people like further education colleges. So the best way is to find an existing provider in your area. You won't get as much money, but is go to them and say, look, we're working with people that you wouldn't normally see. Um, And so we can actually help you. You always have to find what you're going to do that helps somebody else's targets, if that makes sense, because that's the win-win for them. The challenge is if you're trying to pay people which obviously you want to try to do, but you also want to try to get some income in. And and it's not easy to do that. So some of the models that we've tried to do over time is um, work out a way where you can perhaps trade through the company. It's quite complicated, but trade through your company so the individuals might be still in training initially, but you have to support them while they're still on benefits. But then enable them to build up their startup capital to start off at the end of it. So there are ways you can do that. I'm happy to talk to you afterwards, if you like, in more detail, if that's helpful. Uh, yeah, I think that's a conversation worth pursuing. There's a bit yeah. of technical detail on that one, but that's really useful. More questions or comments? More questions? Um, Andy, yourself. That's a follow-up question to that one may be useful. Yes. In terms of how you structure these things by way of actually just going on and doing it or having to form some kind of legal entity to make things happen and whether we want to comment on that as you start up. Yeah, it's quite interesting because depending on how you start and how you want to, to fund what you're doing, a lot of people just start as almost a sole trader, so they're just an individual wanting to make something happen. With Unlimited that I talked about, they give small grants and they will give those to an individual. They're one of the very few organizations that will do that. And they will literally, once you've, if you've got through the process and you've talked to them and you've filled in all the application forms, they'll put that money into one person's bank account. Now, that's very brave and trusting and doesn't happen very often, but that's what Unlimited do. So you can just get started that way. If you're going for bigger grant funding, you will almost certainly have to have some form of constituted group. 
In some cases, you can start as a voluntary group that just has a constitution, and some of you may have that, various things, you know, there are lunch clubs and others that do that. But once, if you remember when I showed you that slide of the journey, you normally need to then move on into something that that poses less risk to the people involved, so you would form some form of limited company. There are lots and lots of different forms. It gets very, very complicated. What I would always advise people to do is work with somebody who will take you through what you're trying to do, take you through the functions of what you're trying to do first, and then advise you what form it should be. Because if you start with the wrong form, it's hard to change, and often people advise you wrong at the beginning. So it's better to work through the process and then the form will come out. And that could be a charity. It could be a, a, a community interest company or other things. Um, somebody over there as well. Sorry, is that a related question? Yeah, let's stay. I've got another one too, but let's go with yours first. Let's stick with the theme. David Cutting. Um, City Church Sheffield. Also, on the Charity Commission website, there's very, very helpful stuff about charitable incorporated organisations which, again, will give you some food for thought about how you want to set up your constitution, whether it's a limited company or just a CIO. Absolutely. And and I think the main thing to say is, you know, when I talked about some of the different models, in terms of charity registration, if you're going to be either a company limited by guarantee in a registered charity or an unincorporated registered charity or a community... um, Sorry, I've done it again. Charitable Incorporated Organisation, which is a fairly new structure, then virtually all of your activity has to be deemed to be charitable. So if what you're doing is supporting unemployed people into work or helping people in some way that's embedded in what you do, then that's fine. If what you're going to do is make things and sell them, you may well find you need to be looking at a slightly different structure because you're only allowed to uh, earn about, uh, well, it's 50,000 is the maximum within the charitable structure. So, again, that's why I say seek advice because it's right to find the right structure for people. Uh, Let me just bring an associated question in here, Kate, or uh, for you to comment. So from the point of view of churches that are looking to go down the social enterprise model from the centre, as it were, rather than an entrepreneur just setting up, um, many of them, I've noticed, begin to set up parallel companies or CICs or whatever. Um, uh, Any comments on that process, and have you seen that happen very much? And we're beginning to see it happen. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's a trend. I think it's a trend. Uh, What you can do is, if you want to set up something like a separate company, um, and you've got at back behind it a bigger organisation that's probably a registered charity in some way, if it's a church or whatever. Um, Again, it's what tax lets you do: is you're allowed to gift aid the tax profits from those other companies back into the centre or something else you want to do. So sometimes it's a mixed structure that works best. So you've got one that's quite focused on the trading, but the the thing about social enterprise trading structures, so community interest companies, is they have what are called asset locks. So your bit about, but those other folks took the money away, if you like. It prevents that happening. Um, I. I think many of us have at times made wrong choices. I chose to go into partnership with somebody who said they were a social entrepreneur until we got very close to very big money. Uh, in this case, I actually I hand, handed back £100,000 to the John Paul Getty Trust, and I literally sent them the cheque back because this other person was basically wanting the money, and that wasn't what we were there to do. We were there to use the money wisely. Uh, 
So you might have to make difficult decisions. But that's where sometimes setting up a structure fairly early on will protect you, protect the people that you're trying to support and protect the income or the money that you raise in the right way. You learn a lot after the event sometimes. Get the mic to you. Yep. As a new Christian for people, um, you see the good in everybody and you want to see the good in everybody. You don't see that side where you're taking a risk. So basically it was a, a family member who'd done what they'd done and they walked away with something that was worth £1.6 from £160,000, which would have set Scrap for Life up as what we'd gone yeah. into it for. And it was just heartbreaking. And I'm completely with you in the you want to believe the good in everyone, but that's where strong governance and risk management help you. So I do a lot on trust, but I've also learned to put a good legal framework and governance structure behind as well. Okay, uh, Nick over here. Andy, if you could just come <laughs> This is to keep me. Andy fit. We're yeah, well, very good. Yeah, we want to turn him into a marathon runner, really. Um, just the, the comment about, from the Jim Collins book, Getting the Right People on the Bus, could you sort of express a little bit more about who would you, what sort of skill sets do you think are important in setting up something like this? Um, there's actually one of the things that, um, as good Christians, I'm sure you probably haven't read The Beer Mat Entrepreneur, but uh, <laughs> you might have done. Um, in that book and a number of others, fairly simply, um, the, the key group of people you need are the person who's passionate about the product or service that you're working on. So you need that one, per- and that's often the person that started it. Somebody who really likes the finance admin side. Now, that often isn't the person who started the business. Um, so you really need somebody to keep you right on that side. The other thing is selling and marketing, because often that isn't the bit that people are good at doing as well. So I know some brilliant social enterprises, but the people running them just don't know how to sell them out to the wider world. So I would say they're the three kind of core things that you need to get started with. After that, you'll suddenly find... I mean, I got to the point... the original um, development trust I set up, Acumen, we end up with 80 staff. So you've got people doing all sorts of things. But when you first start, three of you is great if you can. And uh, those people need to be really committed to the vision and not to just personal gain. Yeah. and, I mean, and alone. I, and it is interesting. There are now people, I've just been talking to somebody who runs, they're not Christians, but they run a social enterprise theatre company, um, very interested in being inclusive in the way that they work. Um, I've been able to help them um, gain access to a big building, a grade two listed building um, that they're going to now take on. So this is a big step for them. And what they've just said to me is, we need some more directors, but all of us put £2,000 in when we first started, so we need to find somebody who's not only willing to come and work with us, but will actually also put £2,000 on the table. There's a mark of commitment, which seems fair enough in some ways, so they just don't want somebody who will come along and take, but not actually give. Okay, time for one or two more questions, if there are any more. We've had some really interesting ones, and there'll be some private discussions at the end, I think, probably. Yes, this gentleman's here from Zambia, Kate. There's some Zambian church leaders here. Excellent. So, African context. Uh, We're running something like that, but we don't have enough funding. Would you know uh, some companies or 
funding that would help outside UK? Um, there are organisations that will fund outside UK. I mean, it's, a, it's sometimes quite a, a, an interesting one because when you're in the UK, you'll look at a lot of the grant-making trusts and foundations in the UK and they'll say, we won't fund overseas work. But what's happening at the moment, um, outside, in, in more developing countries, there are a lot of impact investors yeah, do you want to say something as well? Uh, and impact investors, a lot are coming from North America, and they're really interested in enterprises that will make a difference. So if you can demonstrate the impact that you will have, they may well be prepared to put something in. And Andy yeah, would like to comment. Um, evolving um, sort of philanthropic funds who want to invest in things for impact rather than just giving grants or being a, a foundation who give grants-making bodies and there are organisations and consortiums that Christian Adrian, for example, and Tradecraft are both involved in an organisation called Acre, which looks to bring businesses, sort of micro and, and mid-scale businesses, to a stage where they are ready for broader investment. And so I'll, I'll grab you later, Austin, and I'll give you some contacts on that one from, from East African point of view. We've got offices in, in Kenya and Tanzania doing that kind of thing. But as a general principle, the themes are moving more from let's give somebody some money to let's put some money in with a specific impact outcome and let's grow capability. In the same way as businesses invest and investment funds invest for profit, they're turning the angle more philanthropically for profit and impact. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a conversation to continue afterwards, social impact funding internationally. Uh, let's take one more question and then I think we're going to bring it to an end so that there's a bit of time for people to come and talk to Kate privately, which I think is going to be important. Any other questions that people would like to ask? Or have we exhausted your public questions? We haven't exhausted your thoughts because I can see a lot of cogs turning <laughs> and a lot of challenging thought processes going on. Okay, well, um, this has been a very stimulating session because we're looking at, you know, foundational ideas that are not really in the DNA of a lot of Christians thinking. And the idea of this seminar is to spread uh, these ideas around and get it into our thinking at a, at a deeper level. Kate, we're so appreciative of you coming. Can we show our appreciation to Kate? Thank you so much. Um, it was def definitely better than Steve McLaren, you know. He's got a few issues on the pitch that he needs to sort out, as yesterday indicated. And uh, fortunately, he won't hear this. Uh, um, uh, so Kate's around now. Um, do come and talk to her. Can I just say a final comment just from the Jubilee Plus point of view? You've had a little card on your seat, which is an invitation to our annual conference. happens to be in Sussex this year. Next year, it's probably going to be in the northeast, and we'll be working with Kate. Uh, we're looking for a venue right now. Um, so we'll keep, you'll keep you posted on that. All our, we've got lots of literature here we'd love you to look at. And don't forget The Myth of the Undeserving Poor book, which is available at the bookstore at uh, £7. And Isla's just reminding me, if you want our monthly e-news sign-up for Jubilee Plus, or give us your email address and we'll get you on that. We're developing an e-news framework to keep you posted as to what we're doing. We have one final comment, which is... Which, Oh, the PowerPoint. Kate, um, what about access to the PowerPoint? I can... You can leave it with us? I can leave okay, it Okay, so the thing definitely. to do, if you want the PowerPoint, if you just speak to Isla, 
um, on the desk, we at Jubilee Plus Office will get it to you if we've got your email address. That's really helpful because there was a lot of stuff there, Kate, we, didn't, uh, we couldn't absorb it all because uh, there were so many interesting things that needed a little bit of further digestion. So if you want the PowerPoint, that's the way to get it. Thanks for coming. Come and talk to Kate. And we finished this session. Thanks for being with us this morning. And Zachary Reed from Lancaster needs a parent. Um, well, you know what I mean, you know. An active parent <laughs> to get moving quickly. Okay, thank you very much. We're done. Thanks, Kate. Do come and talk to Kate now. Take your opportunity. Um, it's only going to be a short one.